And now let's turn to our text for today, Luke chapter 18 and chapter 19. That is Luke chapter 18, 31 to 34, and chapter 19, verse 28 to 38. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, that they did not grasp what was said. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, good morning, Renewal. Uh, my name is Luke, who I'll be preaching uh, for us this morning. Uh, well, believe it or not, we're already in the first week of spring uh, for 2021. It's been over a year since our church went to virtual services. And around this time uh, is when we would have recently come back uh, from our congregational retreat, uh, which usually serves as kind of an internal reminder for me that Easter is right around the corner. Uh, but as you know, we didn't have our congregational retreat this year. And so like me, uh, perhaps many of you are a little caught by surprise how fast uh, Easter had come. Uh, furthermore, uh, when during this time, uh, it's filled with spring shopping, picnics, uh, decorations that we see in the stores, all of those things would be surrounding us. And instead, uh, we're surrounded with news of death tolls from the coronavirus. Uh, violent shootings taking place all over our nation, even in our very own backyard of Philadelphia. And we're seeing those even against the vulnerable. We're seeing, as our brother shared, racist attacks against black and Asian communities. And you and I both know that the list goes on and on. And even now, uh, our hearts are still broken and still grieving over what took place in Atlanta and we're angry at the excuses and the dismissing of the specific racial targeting of these Asian women. We're also ashamed that even the shooter is a proclaimed Christian and has been an active member of the church. And all the while, 
while some of us are still processing even our own personal experiences of, of racial trauma probably accumulated throughout the years, and as all this is going on, we immediately turn on the news to see mass shootings. We hear news of the death toll rising still from COVID, We're reading about insurrections and violent killings in Myanmar. I believe 114 people so far killed. All to say, all the more, this year, celebrating the Easter resurrection seems kind of like a surprise. And perhaps even with all that's going on, more like an afterthought or even seems inappropriate. And so perhaps then this Sunday, today, this Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Passion Week, leading up to Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave, maybe this can help us to take some time to stop and to reorient the flood of tragedies that comes our way, the array of emotions that we've encompassed throughout this year and the weariness from this world. And we can put them around the resurrection of our King, who is the anchor of our souls, the firm foundation on which we stand, and the good shepherd who invites us and says, come, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. So for today and for this Easter weekend, including our Good Friday service, which as we share will be streamed Friday night, we're going to take a quick excursus out of Daniel, and we're going to go over select passages of his death and resurrection in the book of Luke. Why Luke? Well, because out of the four Gospels, which all record Jesus' life in four different accounts, uh, Jesus is particularly portrayed as the Savior King, who is both strong and mighty and yet compassionate toward the poor, the vulnerable, the broken, the outcasts, and the undeserving. And so in the Gospel of Luke, we see a portrait of a king who's also fully aware of everything that's going on in this world, to even the most minute of details, and also fully involved. Not only that, we see a king who humbles himself, and he weeps with us. Especially if you find yourself this morning in the darkest of Fridays, he also reminds us of the hope that Easter brings, Sunday. So there are two things that we want to look at this morning, two portrayals here with Jesus as king. First, Jesus as the sovereign king. And secondly, Jesus as the suffering king. So let us let that guide us this morning. Before we dive into our passage even more, uh, join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as our brother shared, asking and pleading for the healing for all the victims, including the shootings, the racist attacks, COVID victims, even for those in our congregation still recovering, still sorting out all that we're feeling and thinking. And we also pray for your guidance as we're bombarded with social media that can at times compete with our desire to come to you in prayer and to seek you. And Lord, while we're here on earth, even though it seems like we're living in in a modern-day Babylon, help us to be faithful to be active both in and outside of our homes, in our respective spheres 
of influence, our communities, our work, joining organization, what may be, so that in our places, in our nation, that there would be change, there would be justice, that there would be love and dignity given to the black communities, the Asian communities, and continuing to the minority communities as well. And finally, Lord, we do pray for hope. The hope that resurrection brings that tells us that while we are invested here on earth to be agents of transformation, that we would also eternally be invested in our ultimate hope, Jesus Christ, who will one day bring life out of death, usher in his perfect kingdom, and help us to dwell upon that hope this week as we look upon your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, here in our passage, we're, we're at this point when Jesus is right about to enter Jerusalem. He's at the top of these low mountains, looking down on the city. Now, he's starting his way towards its gates, getting closer and closer. Now, remember, this is the gospel writer Luke recording uh, what took place writing in divine inspiration. Now, take a second and consider God being the ultimate author through this gospel writer, Luke. And as the author, God knows which parts of the story to leave in and which parts to take out. Behind every story, every image you conjure up, every phrasing of words, the choice of words, even the diction as stories are communicated, you're trying to get across a certain message. That's what a story does. And the skill with which you combine all of these elements determines how powerful and how great a story is. Now, what does God intentionally do and include and describe? What are the details included as Jesus enters Jerusalem? The details that God deems to be important enough to communicate. Well, what sticks out here, and we can see that because Luke, he takes up a good amount of space to describe it, is how Jesus obtains a colt to ride into the city. You see, seven out of the 13 verses of what we just read, starting from verse 28 all the way through verse 35, they're dedicated around Jesus obtaining this colt, this barnyard animal. Now, if God is a grand storyteller who knows what he's doing, utilizing all the elements of storytelling, why does he dedicate this amount of space and detail to how Jesus obtains this cult to enter Jerusalem? What is he communicating through this seemingly irrelevant event, especially in comparison to this grand triumphant entry into Jerusalem? And it's that in light of the events leading up to Jesus' death, the darkest time of his life, and quite honestly, honestly, of all history, in light of what's going to happen to him, Judas' betrayal, the false trial and condemnation by the Pharisees, his crucifixion, dying a criminal's death, and even in light of Satan's apparent victory, God, through the details of this cult, this small barnyard animal, he's telling us that Jesus was fully aware of every detail and was in complete control of every second of every event that took place during Passion Week. Do you see Jesus' awareness of even the minute details of this animal? He knows exactly where it is. He knows exactly where it will be tied up. 
And he knows that it has never been written before. He even knows that the owners will approach the disciples and he matches word for word what they are to say to the disciples and what the disciples will respond with. You see, for us, we know that it was Palm Sunday, the Sunday before he'd be crucified. And we know that Good Friday is coming because we have scripture and we have these events after the fact, after they occurred. But we fail to see for Jesus, he knew every single event that took place before the fact. You see, he did not stumble his way upon the cross, nor was he surprised at, at any of the persecution that he experienced. Nor was he forced into a situation where he had to be the Messiah against his will. He knew exactly what he was doing. And yet he was set upon completing the mission that he was set to complete, that he was fully aware of every single detail. Now, our passage this morning, it's a fulfillment of a prophecy. A prophecy that occurred 500 years before through the prophet Zechariah. Now, in Zechariah chapter 9, I have the passage here for us. It reads, Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, if this prophecy is in the background, then Jesus, as the storyteller who's making this claim, who's in this story, he's saying that in response to the thousands of years of pain, and suffering and the curse that sin brings into this world that he is the answer to all of our cries. You see, he doesn't fulfill this prophecy in some generic sense by claiming some lofty idea of salvation. Rather, he fulfills the specific requirements of this prophecy by writing on the exact animal that was prophesied 500 years before. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was getting himself into. What does this mean? It means that he, yes, he knew all of the Old Testament prophecies. He knew what his mission entailed. He knew that there would be rejection, that he would be beaten and spit upon. He knew fully that he was going to bear the weight of the cross. He knew even the exact number of times that they were going to pound those nails into his hands and feet. He knew the full totality of God's wrath that was to come upon him because of our sin. He knew the face of every sinner that he set out to save even as he stared at some of them, mocking and cursing him as he hung upon that tree. He knew fully of every single sin that you would commit, every single instance of it. He knew fully all the atrocity and tragedies that were to take place throughout all of history, even the ones we see on the news. For that's the reason why he came into this world, to remove the curse as far as it is found. Not only was he fully aware of these circumstances as he rode into Jerusalem, but he was in full control. Control of everything that took place, even during this week, leading up to Good Friday and Easter. We rightfully portray Jesus as this innocent lamb that was slain. And we're correct to do so. The one who did not open his mouth as he was led to the altar 
to be unjustly sacrificed for our sins. And while we affirm and commemorate Jesus for his obedience as the sacrificial lamb, let us not forget, brothers and sisters, that he was not weak at all, nor was he helpless in these situations. He was in full control of every single event that occurred. As the creator of the universe, the Alpha Omega, for by him and through him, all things were created. Let us not forget that Jesus was still God of the universe in his ministry, and especially so during this final Passion Week. But Jesus, being God in all of his might and power, he still concerns himself with all of the details and is powerful over them, even to the kind of animal he was to ride. See, he didn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse, destroying the atrocities of the Roman Empire in order to deal with the deeper atrocity of sin that had been running its course throughout all of history. And like us today, just because we don't see Jesus entering into this world today on a war horse, us quickly wanting him to do everything that we, everything that we want him to do on our terms and in our way and in our timing, let us not forget who Jesus is. And then be amazed at the fact that he's a God who is aware and who is concerned with every single detail of this world and of your life. You know, I, I got this while I was at a counseling seminar on anxiety. Uh, and there was a picture shared, and it was a picture that NASA shared uh, from the Voyager that took place in 1990. And it just sat at the edge of the solar system, and right before it left, it took a picture of the entire solar system. And this is the picture. And so what do you see? If you're quick enough or astute enough, you see a small dot in that small sunbeam. And that's Earth. It's actually a fraction of a pixel. And that puts things into perspective. Now, we think that something in this small dot all the things on this earth is worth our fears and worship compared to the one who created this amongst the countless of stars and universes out there. I want to read this quote by Carl Sagan, who was a, is a well-known astrophysicist in response to this picture. Let's go back to the picture as I read this. I want you to have a perspective. He says this, Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, of every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of religions and ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter, every forger, every hero, every coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint, every sinner, all in the history of our species, lived there on this moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. 
Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. Think about how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they were to kill one another, how fervent their hatred. Think of the rivers, the rivers of blood spilled by all of those generals and emperors so that in glory and in their own triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. You can come back to me. Now God, Jesus, he is aware and in control of every fraction of what's going on in this dot and every fraction of every single thing you are experiencing. Every fraction of every pain, the hurt you felt, and every fraction of your need for a Savior. That's the kind of God, that's the kind of King we have. Now seeing a glimpse of the kind of position and perspective that Jesus has and the scale of his power, his awareness, and his control. Now consider how he himself, God, enters into this fraction of a dot. And we read the minute details of him instructing the uh, disciples to, to tie and untie this donkey to ride into the city. Five times Luke writes that the colt was tied and untied. Verse 30, go into the village, find a colt tied and untied. Bring it here. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say that the Lord sees it. Verse 33, as they were untying the colt, the owners asked, why are you untying it? And so forth. And it's not like... Back then, as Luke was writing off this scroll that he could just control C and control V it, there's purpose into these details. And what's he saying? That Jesus was in control of every single event, even to the details of this animal that takes place on this fraction of a dot called Earth during Passion Week. See, for Jesus, Jerusalem meant death. And so for us, is there a Jerusalem that you're approaching in your life? Darkness, a difficult time. Do you see down the horizon reasons for you to be afraid or anxious? Maybe you're in a place where you feel like everything is going out of control and there's nothing that you can do to put things back into order. And all that you're thinking about is how difficult things are. And so yes, you are genuinely asking the question, God, are you even there? Do you even know what's going on in this life? Do you even know what's going on in this world? Do you have the slightest idea of what we are going through? Psalm 103 says that the Lord causes each blade of grass to grow along his terms. So let me respond with this question. When we ask, God, are you even there? What do you think? He prescribes word for word exactly what the disciples are going to say. What do you think? He orchestrates the events and life of an ordinary donkey with ordinary owners at an ordinary bar to fulfill the grand messianic prophecy that took place 500 years before. What do you think? And he works all things extraordinary and ordinary 
the difficult and the easy, all things together for the good of those who love him for the purposes of his glory. What do you think? We have a sovereign king, brothers and sisters. We also have a suffering king. That's the second portrayal I want us to look at this morning. Luke emphasizes that when they initially approached the city, not everyone was cheering and praising him. Because we first take a look at the disciples who are observing this so-called triumphant entry because as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the disciples, they're conjuring up images in their minds. They're probably thinking of things like the book of Kings, where it talks about King Solomon, who in his grand majesty entered into the city of Jerusalem with his armies. And all the people blew their trumpets and they shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 40. But we don't have that. What do we have here? Just imagine with me, no massive crowds, but just a small handful of fishermen walking alongside Jesus, who's on this small donkey. And if you've ever been on a farm, have you ever seen a donkey or even rode on it? It doesn't walk straight in a steadily fashion. It's braying, probably embarrassing, stumbling its way over the road. No fanfare, no huge army, but Jesus in humility. And this is complete opposite to what the disciples are thinking, thinking that Jesus' kingdom should be established immediately, right? You know, earlier in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it says that as the disciples were hearing these things, And because Jesus was nearing Jerusalem, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They wanted the kingdom now in their own timing. They wanted Jesus to obliterate the Roman Empire and to give back to what once was theirs. And in our passage, in verse 35, you can see they're the ones who actually placed Jesus on the donkey. Why? Because they're saying, come on, Jesus, let's go with it. Let's get the party started. They take the initiative because they want the kingdom to be ushered in now. And they want Jesus to be the earthly king that they wanted. As a puppet king who could dispel the Roman forces and give freedom to the Jewish people once again. They're desperately trying to make Jesus, trying to make him out to be the king that they want him to be. They themselves place him on the donkey. They put cloaks on its back and in front of it as they lead the way. And they're trying to make this grand entrance fit for a mighty king, but something's quite not right. Because a mighty king is not supposed to come on a donkey. He rides on the back of a grand war horse. He's supposed to ride in after he conquers his enemies and after everyone falls subject to his feet. He's supposed to triumphantly charge into Jerusalem, take over the empire, and get rid of all evil and wickedness. They put palm branches in front of this horse, this donkey. They go around, try to instigate the crowd to praise him, but again, something's quite not right. 
This donkey's never been ridden before. It's stumbling, making its awkward steps into the gates. It's neighing. This is your king. Where is his army? I thought he could raise the dead. He doesn't even own a horse. He had to borrow a donkey. Brothers and sisters, I can't help but see ourselves in this because I want to make Jesus to the king that I want him to be, to make everything in this world the way that I want it to be, and I want it now. And as you read the Passion narrative, you will see, yes, people do praise him. They sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but not even four chapters later, than a few days, the very same ones who praise him are the first ones to say, crucify him, crucify him. It seems very quick for them to change their minds, and what changed it? It only took four chapters for them to see that Jesus wasn't turning out to be the king that they wanted. It didn't take much when they saw him arrested and beaten and spat upon, looking powerless. He wasn't going to be the earthly king to destroy the Roman forces, and he definitely wasn't going to do that anytime soon. And as soon as Jesus doesn't provide what we want, we join with the crowd saying, crucify him. Jesus, you're supposed to provide me this job. Are you really powerful? Are you really good? Jesus, you're supposed to make that person do what I want him or her to do. Jesus, you're supposed to put an end to all the tragedies and events that take place through this policy, through that agency, through this leader. Jesus, you're supposed to ensure that I feel loved all the time. You're supposed to provide for me that relationship, that marriage. Jesus, why aren't you providing for me? Do you really love me? It doesn't take long for us to switch sides, does it? Because we can be singing Lord, you are our Savior King. And a few minutes later, a few chapters later, he doesn't give us what we want. And our singing very quickly turns into, what good is Jesus? How relevant is he for my life, for our world? Is he even real? I believe what Luke is writing here in our passage is that perhaps the God, the kind of king that you're conjuring Jesus up to be, a God who follows your commands, perhaps you're right. That kind of God doesn't exist because that's not the kind of God Jesus is. And that will be the case when we place our expectations on Jesus, when he doesn't submit to our will every day we're crucifying him and we feel justified to do so because he's not giving us what we want. But maybe Luke is writing about a God a king who is in control and who has a plan, even in the midst of evil, to bring good out of it. And perhaps even us, in our limited capacity, we can't comprehend how, but we know why. And we know that we have a king who does know. And what completely amazes me is that in the midst of it, while Jesus, he has all the power and right to literally destroy anyone who stands against him, even us, he has every power and right to silence us. He doesn't. Now, I might have shared how 
My father was a stockbroker, a stock investor with his brother. And they started this company in Korea when I was a junior in high school. Now, I was in Korea at that time, and you guys might not know, but uh, in 1997, uh, there was a huge financial crisis in Korea, in all of Asia, in fact. And the stock market crashed, and uh, my father, who proudly, proudly tells me every time I see him that he graduated from a top university in Korea, he was a well-established man, how he sold everything and came to America uh, for my sake. And even as we were situating ourselves here in the States, we had to constantly move. I had to constantly switch high schools, four high schools, in a matter of four years. And uh, you know, high school is a very sensitive time to find friends, but after a while, I saw that the best way to make friends uh, was by joining a sports team. So I joined the basketball team, and one day, a couple of the guys on the team asked me if I wanted to play with them after school at a nearby park. And I was excited because this was my inn. But as a high school student, I needed a ride to the courts uh, because it was some ways from my house. And at that time, uh, my dad, uh, coming back from Korea, he was working for someone at a dry cleaner, uh, driving vans around, uh, making various deliveries throughout the town. Now, his schedule uh, wasn't flexible at all. But I kept complaining and asking him, and eventually he agreed to take me. And I remember him picking me up, uh, not in our car, uh, but in the dry cleaner van, and with all the clothes hanged in the back. And he rushed to pick me up, and he was about 30 minutes late when he picked me up. And I got in the van, and I was angry with him for being late. You know, because if you know anything about basketball, if you're five minutes late and you don't play in the beginning, you have to wait the entire game until <laughs> you can play again. All the teams would have been made already. I wouldn't be playing the whole time. So I remember just grilling him the entire ride, just complaining about moving here in the first place, how I wanted a normal American life like everyone else. And, you know, years later, I find out from my mom that that day he had to skip uh, his lunch break and rush over to my house all the way across town to pick me up. I found out later that he even got yelled at by his boss because he was late getting back to work. And, you know, what convicted me, you know, wasn't the sacrifice that he made for his son, because I think a lot of fathers do. But as I was hearing my mother share that with me, what I learned was that during that whole time in that van, when I was yelling at him, he didn't say a word during that entire car ride. And as my father, he could have, and he should have, yelled at me right there and then, bringing up all the things that he had to go through just so that I could play a game of basketball. But during that whole time, he was silent, looking straight ahead, simply apologizing for being late. He dropped me off. He didn't say a word. He had every right to put me in my place, and yet he chooses to sympathize with me in his humility. Because if he put me in my place in that moment, he knew that our relationship would be jeopardized. You see, Isaiah 53 says that this Messiah, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth 
Jesus has every right to silence us with his power. He has every ability to quiet the disciples and their rebellious hearts in that moment, and he doesn't. He doesn't do that because if he came and did exactly what they wanted him to do, to destroy all evil, to put down the rebels' hearts, they, we, would be the first ones to go and our rebellious hearts against him. And yet, Jesus chooses to be humble and he chooses to suffer. Why? Because he wants to ensure that we need to understand the kind of king he is. We don't understand him. For Romans chapter 3 says, no one understands, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one understands. We have no idea. Yet, Jesus wants to make sure that we understand him the kind of king that we need. And how does he do that? He breaks our notions of what kind of king we want by being in himself this beautiful collision of majesty and humility, the one through whom all things were made, and yet he draws near to you as the one who holds the entire universe in his hand and yet knows each tear that falls down from your face and every prayer you lift up. He doesn't force his reign upon you, yet he washes your feet. Though he requires our allegiance, he humbles himself in suffering. Why? To win our hearts. He approaches us in humility and suffering and he speaks to us as a king who is in control and sovereign of the entire universe and he's concerned with our relationship with him. Jesus combines himself in himself, both savior and king. He enters Jerusalem on a steed like a king, yet that steed is a donkey. (laughs) a donkey of peace, an animal that's not been ridden before because there had not been a king like this before. He breaks our notion and expectations radically in his humility and suffering. This is the kind of king we have, far different from any king on this earth and the king that we need. Now let me end with this final word of hope. It doesn't come on a donkey, and yet we know that it's a war horse that represents victory, but do not be mistaken. Jesus will one day establish his kingdom here on earth because he will come on a magnificent white horse whose name is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and has a name written that no one knows but himself. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Revelation chapter 19 but not yet. For on Palm Sunday, he rides a donkey. A donkey that doesn't represent victory. It symbolizes peace. 
because Jesus came to earth on that Palm Sunday, not to start a war, but to establish peace, that when we, during this Easter Sunday, when we have the peace of God that comes into our hearts, when we bow to our one and true king, the king who is in control of all the details of our lives, and the king who suffers, for in him we are justified by faith, for in this king we have a future kingdom where there is perfect justice, a sinless heaven and a tear-free home. Let us receive this kind of king. Join me as we pray. Before I pray for us, let's just take a few seconds in your own hearts to ask for forgiveness for the kind of king we conjure him up to be and to receive him on his own terms, trusting in him to be the sovereign Lord, yet a God who knows, who understands, and is in control. Let us pray that just for a few seconds, and I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, had I been a king, I would have crushed the rebels like myself so quickly, and yet I praise you that I'm not, and you're the king who is patient, who is in control, who brings good even out of darkness and evil. For I profess that you brought good out of me when you came into my life as my Lord and Savior. May this be true for every single person on this earth so that they receive you, not as a king to cause war, but a king to bring us into his kingdom. That's what we want for everyone in this church, in our nation, and in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.